0: I don't know where they got that picture from. Carol said they did she didn't give it to them. But that was me dipping my finger in the Sea of Galilee. We'll switch to something a little bit better than that. Well, this morning I'm tasked with introducing us to the parables of Jesus Christ. We're starting a new series. It's going to take us a a few months to get through it all. And I don't know if we're even going to get through all of the parables of Jesus. But it's a wonderful portion of Scripture in which Jesus confounds, he teaches, he encourages, and he confronts. When you see a cartoon like this, what emotions does it well up, or cause to well up with inside of you? Sadness, anger, frustration, misunderstanding, all of the above, none of the above. Do you agree with it? Do you disagree with it? Now this cartoon is not reflective in any way of Jesus' ministry here on this earth. But like this cartoon... Jesus Christ elicited a variety of strong and powerful emotions from people. Jesus began his teaching ministry on this earth around the age of 30, and it lasted for three, three and a half years before he was crucified. Within that time here on this earth, people came to love Jesus some eventually came to recognize him as the Messiah. He was misunderstood by those who thought he came to overthrow the Roman Empire. He was hated by those who saw him as a, power, as a threat to, to their power. King Herod went an awfully long way to try and eliminate Jesus Christ even before he started his teaching ministry. And his life was constantly under threat more and more by the religious rulers of the day. Interesting fact that I came across. The three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're called synoptic Gospels because they all have similar stories, similar dialogues of Jesus Christ. There's a lot that they have in common. John the Fourth Gospel is a little bit different in a lot of ways about how he represented Jesus Christ, but the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, have a lot of the same stories, dialogue, lessons that Jesus taught. And I came across this uh, little tidbit, and I didn't try this myself to see if that's true or not, but somebody must have tried it out, and they came to the conclusion that within those three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we have a grand total of three hours of dialogue from Jesus Christ that is recorded. That's not a lot in three and a half years of ministry. On an average, it works out to less than an hour of year, less than an hour per year of dialogue that we have recorded from Jesus. Last week, Bruce mentioned how God tells us what we need to know. He doesn't tell us everything, but he tells us what we need to know. Well, I did a calculation myself. That if you took eight hours in a day, that would be a good amount that somebody has to talk to somebody or anybody. You multiply that by 365 days and multiply that answer by three and a half years, and you come up with 10,220 hours. As a percentage of what we have recorded from Jesus, that represents 0.000294 of a percent of a possible 10,220 hours. So it's really not a lot. But within that three hours of dialogue, within that time, we have some 46 parables. And I have 46 up there with a question mark, because I counted in my Bible, 17 parables in which the authors of the Gospels actually start off the story with saying this is a parable of Jesus. Now, I looked up lists in whatever references I can find, commentaries, the internet, whatever, and I came up with lists of anywhere from 24 to 50 parables of Jesus Christ. A lot of the parables you have to take some interpretation as to whether they actually fit the definition of a parable. And we'll get into that definition shortly. The book of John, depending on who you talk to, will have either no parables or a few. And some people believe some of what John recorded of Jesus Christ are parables because of some of the wording that he used to introduce them, and they can be put into that parable definition. It's possible to get into some pretty deep discussions as to whether this story or that story that's recorded of Jesus Christ is a parable or not. But the most important thing that we have to look at when it comes to Jesus' parables over the coming weeks is not getting caught up in the debate of whether this story or that story is or isn't a parable. But rather, we need to look closely at the narrative that Jesus used, the story, And glean the lesson or the principle that Jesus was trying to teach, predominantly His disciples through these parables. If we can concentrate on that, I believe good things are going to happen over the coming weeks. Now I do recognize that to fully understand the complexity of not only the parables that Jesus used, but also the lessons and the principles that He was trying to teach, we have to first look at what is a parable? What's the anatomy of a parable? The word parable is a compound word made up of two Greek words. The first one is para, meaning alongside, and the second Greek word is balo, meaning to throw. Put together, we have to throw alongside. In other words, a parable makes a comparison between a known truth and an unknown truth. It throws them alongside each other, but it doesn't mix them together. Rather, they stay parallel to each other the whole time. Now, one of the first definitions I ever heard of a parable is that it's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. It's a very simple definition. It works, but I think we can do better. I came across another definition by a New Testament theologian named C.H. Dodd. And I really like this definition. A parable is a metaphor or a simile drawn from nature or common life, arresting the hearer by its vividness or strangeness and leaving the mind in sufficient doubt about its precise application to tease it into active thought. I'm going to read this again for those who are listening. A metaphor, a parable is a metaphor or simile drawn from nature or common life, arresting the hearer by its vividness or strangeness and leaving the mind in sufficient doubt about its precise application to tease it into active thought. I know nothing about C.H. Dodd, but I think he got it right here. And the reason I like this definition is because it expresses the complexity that comes from a simple story about everyday life. Oftentimes, Jesus' disciples didn't understand the parable until Jesus explained it to to them. They needed to know the story behind the story. Now, they would have had no problem understanding the story that Jesus used from everyday life, but to make that connection, that took Jesus explaining it to them. Parables are given to you to me, to the disciples, they're given to us to make us go, huh, what was he thinking about? What was he trying to say? Once you understand the connection with what is being taught or expressed, they make perfect sense, but until they do, they are a little puzzling. Now, when I first read this definition, I had to go back to my grade school grammar days. And Lindsay, I hope I get this right. But I had to look up the definitions of what is a metaphor, what is a simile, just to make sure I get them right. Well, a metaphor is a figure of speech that describes an object or action in a way that isn't literally true, but helps explain an idea or make a comparison. Some examples of what makes up a metaphor. A metaphor states that one thing is another thing. In the Bible, you'll often see something start off the kingdom of heaven is like. It equates those two things not because they're actually the same, but rather it equates them for the sake of comparison or symbolism. If you take a metaphor literally, it's probably going to sound a little strange. You've all heard the the, um, the expression, "Do you have any black sheep in your family?" I don't even have sheep in my family. Metaphors are used in poetry, literature, anytime someone wants to add some color to the language, or in Jesus' case, to confound the listener. A simile is similar, but a little different. A simile is a figure of speech in which one thing is likened to another, and it's usually achieved by using the word like or as. Some examples of that is, I'm poor as a church mouse, he's hungry as a wolf, she sings like an angel. The word like is used in ten of the parables that I counted, predominantly with the use heaven or the kingdom of heaven is like. Sometimes the kingdom of God is like is is also used. Not to get too technical here, but a parable is actually not an illustration, or at least not until the parable is explained When Jesus explained his parables to his disciples, the parable then became an illustration. That is, an interpretive explanation of the concept or the lesson he was trying to teach. Once it's explained and made clear of how a parable links the concept or lesson being taught, then the earthly story becomes an illustration to help the listener understand what is being taught from a heavenly perspective. Before that happens, it remains a parable. Now Jesus didn't start off his ministry teaching in parables. And we can look to that in Matthew chapter 4 verses 12 to 17. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he returned to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, the way of the sea along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Exactly what John the Baptist was preaching. Now as people, and more notably the Pharisees, or the religious rulers, began to reject Jesus' messages and his claims about who he was, Jesus began to use parables more and more when he taught in public. And we can see that in Matthew chapter 13 verses 10 to 15. The disciples came to him and asked, why do you teach to the people in parables? He replied, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven have been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. This is why I speak in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. In In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn, and I would heal them. Jesus didn't teach in parables to better help those listening to him understand what he was teaching. Not at this point. Jesus' disciples had noticed the change, and they asked Jesus, Why? Why are you teaching in parables? Well, Jesus gave them three reasons. The first one, Jesus said, I'm teaching in parables in order to continue to reveal the truth to you, my disciples. Well, by itself, that's a little strange. Why would you teach in parables when all you're doing is confusing me? But when the second reason is put with the first reason, it makes a lot more sense. Because Jesus also taught in parables to hide the truth from unbelievers, notably the religious leaders who had rejected him. And thirdly, Jesus spoke in parables to fulfill prophecy by the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah prophesied that this rejection of Jesus' teaching would occur and Jesus didn't want to waste of his time in an unfruitful orchard. Another portion of scripture which uh, lends a little bit of clarity to this is found in Mark chapter 4, verses 33 to 34. With many similar parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as much as they could understand. He did not say anything to them without using a parable, but when he was alone with his own disciples, he explained everything. Well, let's switch gears a little bit. Let's take a look at an actual parable and to see how it works. Now, not to take away any work from somebody else who's going to be speaking on Jesus' parables. I'm not going to pick one of Jesus' parables. You guys will have to do that work on your own. But rather, I'm going back to the Old Testament, or as I like to refer to it, the First Testament. It's the First Testament we have. Old, for me, just makes it sound like it's outdated and superseded, but that's not the case at all. So sometimes I refer to it as the First Testament. But in the First Testament or Old Testament, there are parables. Not as many as there are in the New Testament regarding... um, uh, Jesus and his teaching. But there's a very well known one, and I don't know if you ever th- thought of it as a parable, but it's found in 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 1 to 7. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. David burned with anger against this man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Well, let's review the definition of a parable. A parable is a metaphor or simile drawn from nature or common life, arresting the hearer by its vividness or strangeness and leaving the mind in sufficient doubt about its precise Application to tease it into active thought. Well, using this definition in the beginning of 2 Samuel chapter 12, the prophet Nathan is telling David a story from everyday life. David thought Nathan was telling him about an event that actually took place, and David was furious. How dare someone who was rich and powerful take advantage of somebody who was not? David was prepared to bring down the death penalty on this rich man, or at least make him pay four times what that lamb was worth. Just to make amends. King David condemned the rich man for his lack of pity. Nathan had David's attention. He had his attention with this metaphor, and without knowing it, David had just condemned himself. The parable just needed to be explained for the parable to become the illustration that would drive home David's sin. And Nathan wasted no time with doing just that. As we follow along, then Nathan said to David, You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's, I gave your master's house to you, and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household I am going to bring calamity upon you. Before your eyes I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you. He will lie with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret. But I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Ouch. All of a sudden, David went from righteous anger to having just condemned himself. It's interesting that David called for the death of the rich man in Nathan's story, but then commuted the sentence to one of financial restitution. David committed adultery with Bathsheba. The penalty for such a crime was death, even for a king. But David repented, And God commuted his sentence, but the cost was still very great. The consequences of David's sin cost the life of the child that was born to him in Bathsheba. So here we have a metaphor drawn from common life, arresting the hearer by its vividness and leaving the mind in sufficient doubt about its precise application to tease it into active thought, or simply put, a parable. The prophet Nathan took an everyday story about a rich man, a poor man, and a lamb, and paralleled it, or threw it alongside the condemnation God was about to pronounce on David for his sin. We're getting back to Jesus' parables. The stories that Jesus told can be broken down into two categories. First category, there are stories about day-to-day life, just day-to-day living. If Jesus was around today and he was telling us a parable, he might say that uh, a young mother had to go to the grocery store to get milk for her daughter. And uh, when she got there, the grocery store was out of milk and on and on and on. It's just a story, mundane at times, about everyday life. The second grouping that these stories fall into have to do with an agricultural background. Now, we have to keep in mind that even an agricultural background in those days would have been a story about everyday life to Jesus' disciples and the crowds that he was teaching because people were so connected to the earth back then just to survive. Now, two-thirds of the stories that I counted, you can put into a category of just everyday life stories. And a third of them have to do more with agriculture. This brings into play for us today a challenge. A challenge that we have to keep in mind as we strive to seek and understand the stories that Jesus used in his parables, these earthly stories. It's easy enough to understand them on a basic level. Everybody has lost something at time to time and found it and known the joy of that. I know what it means to build something on a sandy foundation versus a rocky foundation. I know the consequences of that. Everyone can agree that a crop planted in a good soil is going to produce a good crop in return, whereas seeds planted on a rocky or thorny soil is going to produce a poor crop. But something that's easy to miss are the nuances in these stories because our life today is so different from what it was in Jesus' day. We come home today, you go home from church this morning, you're going to walk into your house, flip on a light switch, the lights come on, you're going to open the fridge, get yourself something to eat, turn on the tap, you've got hot and cold running water, your house is automatically warm, you've got an automatic furnace keeping it warm. It was not like that 2,000 years ago. The challenge for us is going to be to put ourselves back in the shoes of those disciples into the everyday life that they lived to really understand the depth of these stories and what they mean. I took a gold mine tour when it was still around years and years ago and I went underground and I had a little bit of an inkling from that what it means to be an underground miner but I can't really comprehend the depth of what it means to work underground. You hear, smell, feel, understand things I know nothing about because I've never been in your shoes. So it is with the nuances of the day-to-day the day life stories and the agricultural stories that Jesus told. Our society is moving farther and farther away from a farm-based economy with each generation. Most people today, their only connection with the ground is their garden in the backyard. And if your tomato crop fails, well, you just go to the grocery store and buy some. Growing up on a farm, I watched and helped my dad till the soil and plant a crop. We felt the anticipation of the crop to come, the hope for the crop to come, for a good growing season and a healthy crop to provide for our family an entire year's worth of income just from that couple weeks of harvest. In a year when the crop failed because the weather was lousy and you had nothing to show for all your work, that anticipation turned to apprehension because the bills were still there. They still had to be paid. And it's interesting that the hope never leaves the farmer. For even when that happens, their model is next year will be better. It's not next year might be better, next year will be better. Those are those nuances that we have to try and put ourselves into with the stories that we're going to be looking at. I don't believe Jesus' disciples or at least many of them, were farmers. You had a number of fishermen, you had a tax collector. Some of the disciples, we don't really know what their background was, but they were so close to that environment that they would have had no problem grasping those nuances. For instance, the parable of the ten virgins. The disciples would have had no problem understanding the culture of the Jewish marriage uh, ceremony that went on. On the other hand, we're going to have to do a little bit more digging to fully grasp all of that. That doesn't mean that we can't benefit from them the way Jesus' disciples did. It just means we have to work at understanding the culture and lifestyles of the day to glean all that there was for the harvest. I once heard it said that the Bible was written for us, but not to us. The clues are all there, but we're going to have to dig for them. Not just the clues for the day-to-day stories, but the clues that are there for the explanation of the parables. The explanations that move the parable from a parable to then being an illustration. Those are the the things about Jesus' ministry that are so precious to us. We can't lose sight of the fact God put these in the Bible. He inspired Jesus. Men to record these things. And I can't think of a better name or better word either than inspired either, Ted. It's, um, it's a word that it's, it's, it's about the only word that we have. God didn't stand behind the authors of the Bible and dictate word for word. He didn't say, take a memo. But rather, He caused those authors to think about, probably through the Holy Spirit in their lives, what He wanted recorded and what He wanted recorded Out of the three hours of dialogue that we have in the Bible of what Jesus spoke in Matthew, Mark, and Luke are a lot of stories about everyday life and how that relates to the kingdom of heaven. This morning we've looked at the anatomy of a parable, an example of a parable from an Old Testament, and some of the challenges for us in understanding Jesus' parables today. The added challenge for the speakers is two-pronged. They're going to have to bring to us the stories that Jesus used. They're going to have to bring to us the lesson or the principle that Jesus was teaching. But it's going to be a ride that uh, I, I think can do a lot to make our walk just that much more closer to Jesus Christ and to God. So I'm going to end in prayer, and then I'm going to ask the uh, praise group to come up for their final song. And uh, we'll let that be the close of our service this morning. Heavenly Father, I do thank you for the opportunity that we have to read your word. Not only can we read it in English, but we can re- we can read it in a lot of different translations in the English language. We can compare, we can study, we can listen to what other people have learned and gleaned over their years of study. Lord, it's all there for us. Most importantly, though, Lord, I pray that as we go through this series, that you would, through your Holy Spirit, instill in us what you want us to understand from these stories, what you want us to apply to our day-to-day lives as we seek to follow you as Christians, as followers of our Lord and Savior, of the one who saved us from hell, of the one who promises us to never leave us, to never forsake us, but to be there with us through every trial that we face. Lord, help us to understand these parables that we may come away being a better servant for you. And I pray for these things in your name. Amen.